Welcome to the latest episode of Copycats, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the arts and science behind copywriting. This week, we're joined by a man who spends his days advocating and practicing user-centered product development uh, as a lead researcher for Webflow. He's also an educator and the author of Research Practice. Greg Bernstein, welcome to Copycats. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. Great to have you. So let's get into it. You wear a lot of hats. (laughs) (laughs) I do. (laughs) So which one fits you the most comfortably and why? The one that fits me the most comfortably is writing. Um, Writing to me is a solitary activity. I can, it means I'm I'm alone with my thoughts. I'm alone with information. And I do my best thinking when I'm writing. So that's the one that fits me the most. I do have to talk to other people for my work, but when I'm writing, I feel most like myself. Fantastic. And tell us about your book, because you've got a new book out and the experience of putting it together. Yeah. So uh, my book, which I'm holding up for the camera is called Research Practice. Uh, It is a field guide to what a career in user research might look like. Uh, I realize as a user researcher that there's plenty of books on how to conduct interviews or how to run a usability test. There's not a book that tells you how to become a user researcher. And there's books for designers on what it means to be a professional designer. Lawyers go to law school, doctors go to medical school. There's really no training for how to be a professional UX researcher. So that was where the book came from and the process of getting it from an idea in my head to, you know, something that actually exists in the world was pretty messy as most writing projects are, but it started off with me sharing what I knew then realizing I didn't know enough to make this into a book, open sourcing it to other researchers in the community to add their perspectives and then working with a professional editor to put it in the shape of a book and actually publish it. So that's the very abbreviated version of how this idea became a reality uh, earlier this year. Great. And I imagine it was quite a painful process because you had had to change course at least once or twice uh, from what you're saying. So what kind of people were you speaking to to help you build up your your knowledge, but also the the picture that you wanted to get across? I mean, as as a researcher, I did my research. So as soon as I realized I didn't know enough to make this book widely useful, uh, and because my, my experience is in, in working with small to medium-sized organizations, so I couldn't speak to what it's like to work at a Google or Amazon-sized organization. I've never worked in healthcare. I don't know what it's like to work, you know, where patient privacy is the most important thing you have to think about. Um, so I started interviewing other researchers. Uh, I also interviewed people who had self-published their books and people who had had publishing houses publish their books because I wanted to understand what it meant to go with a publisher or to do it myself. I spoke to people, uh, other people who had written books to understand what the editing process was like. So I tried to get as much perspective as I could, not only for the content of the book, but also to understand how to make this book a reality. And I was glad I did because I ended up publishing myself and getting the book in the end that was what I had in mind maybe it's the most important bit of research you've done in your career. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think the previous research that proved I know what I'm doing is what got me into the yeah. position to, to publish a book. But yes, the, the research into this book was pretty critical uh, because, you know, this is the thing that now represents me when I'm not in a room or with somebody. And so I wanted to make sure I got it right. Great. So it's essentially like the Greg Bernstein Academy 
in in written form. <laughs> Not just me, though. Uh, you know, it, it has voices from many other researchers in it. And that's kind of the whole point of the book. Like, every organization is different. Every researcher's role is different. There's no one way to do it. So this book had to show that I don't have all the answers. Here's a number of stories, and you can pick the one that most resonates with you and pick and choose the lessons that most apply to your situation. So that that was the goal of the book, which is why I needed to publish it myself. Most publishers are not interested in a book that says, hey, I don't know all the answers. They want books that tell you, this is how you do it. And that was not what this book was. This book was, I don't have any of the answers, but here's a bunch of them for you to choose from. Right. So one thing that strikes me as a, as a copywriter who's worked alongside a number of researchers now is, and you touched upon it earlier, this idea that, um, you know, it's actually a lot of research that happens is, is influenced by someone's style <laughs> or the approach that they take. There's no one way of doing things. Does that right. for you create problems ever? It does only when somebody hasn't worked with me before. So they might have worked with another researcher in another organization, or they might have come from an educational background where they have this idea that research works a certain way. And so often the tension that arises is because design research, user experience research, there's no one right way to do it. It's okay to be flexible. It's okay to say, you know, we've only heard from five people, but every one of those five people said the exact same thing. We don't have to conduct more interviews. And for somebody who hasn't worked with a researcher before, that might seem like it's not rigorous enough, like it's not how an academic would do research or how a, you know, a scientist would do research. And so the tension, the problems that arise are trying to find a way to say, this is okay to do it this way. We're not doing it the wrong way. Um, how, how do I show that there's still value in a different approach? So there, there can be tension. It's really just, you get through it after a couple of projects and then you come to an understanding both ways that maybe I could do, I could be a little more rigorous to meet the expectations of this person I'm working with, but they can also loosen up a little bit and see that this isn't rocket science, at least in the case of the products I work on, it's not rock. We're not actually building rockets. It's okay to be a little bit more flexible. I went on to your website and it said that this book is not an argument for doing user research. However, I imagine that that's still an argument <laughs> that you need to, to be behind. So is it getting better or are you kind of still finding that there's a bit of resistance to, to doing things the right way? I'm encouraged. If you go on LinkedIn, you'll see a lot of jobs that are open for user researchers. Most organizations, if they're not hiring user researchers, they're encouraging designers and product managers to do research. So I think we're at a point now where the value of research is established. However, if you look at the ratios of researchers to designers, to engineers, to product managers, there's many, not many, but there's fewer job openings for researchers uh, and many more design job openings and many more um, PM jobs that are open. So there's not enough researchers. So I think the value is established, but the headcount is lagging far behind. Uh, and that's, that's a difficult place to be because then once an organization hires a researcher, they want them to do projects for you know five different product areas and five different PMs and multiple design teams. And then there's just the researchers are spread too thin to do the best job they can. And what particular aspect of the research do you think suffers as a result of being spread too thinly? I mean, one, you, you don't dig deep enough. You're not 
you're not putting the space around the questions to to really go deeper. And so you might do one round of research, you hear some interesting things, you get some good feedback. There's not time to go back and ask follow-up questions. There's not the space to say, you know, we learned a lot, but there's still more to unpack here. Let's do another round. Uh, there's just not that opportunity. So the depth of uh, understanding is limited when you're trying to do too many projects for too many people. Uh, you know, ideally you have a researcher embedded on a project from start to finish who can be there when the project is taking shape and keep changing what they're studying to, to make sure that we're not leaving any stone unturned. Um, but I, that's not usually what happens. Usually it's, you know, hey, can you spend a week on this project? Which it's still better than not speaking to anybody and not doing any research. It's not the best situation you could be in. Right, for sure. And we're seeing a lot of examples now of these multidisciplinary teams coming together on projects. One thing that struck me is a lot of the time you have researchers um, following quite a lonely brow on um, projects because maybe because of budget or what you mentioned around, you know, just not enough of them. So my question is, how as a researcher can you, not even as a researcher, maybe... Um, someone else on the design team could be a copywriter could be a designer how can they become advocates for pushing research in in the right way i think any designer is in a position to say i can't design this without understanding the scenarios in which it will be used uh you can't just guess if you if you're guessing you're you're not making informed decisions so i think designers need to advocate for understanding how will this thing that I'm being asked to build, how will it be used? Who's going to use it? How will they even get to the point where they even see this thing that I'm building? Um, and by asking those questions, they're creating the space to do research. Same with PMs, you know, a PM who is in charge of a product, they need to understand what are the scenarios of use. If we don't have that information in hand, we need to make the space to do it. So, and, and I'm encouraged, I'm seeing that more and more. So I think designers realize you can't be a user-centered designer, but leave the user part out of that. You can't just design in a vacuum. Uh, so I, I do see things trending in the right direction there. Right. And specifically on the copy side, uh, we are yeah. talking copy on copycats. Yeah. How can copy and research come closer together to make the, the process better? And how can copywriters become better researchers in a sense? I think it's the same thing. And, and in my previous answer, I, I was thinking of copywriters too. I get to work with a UX writer in my job now and she is running research. She is working on descriptions on different pages that are critical to the user journey. She's putting designs in front of users and asking them to read the copy and reflect back what they think it means or how they interpret it. Uh, showing different versions of copy and asking, you know, which one is resonating with you. So I think research should be a part of any process, including copywriting. And I think that it's the same as any design process. You need to understand how somebody will use what you're putting in front of them, whether it is a interaction design or words on a page or words on a button. Uh, you can't do that without understanding who your audience is and, and how what's in your head is actually resonating with somebody in real life. Right. And once upon a time, we would have looked at just uh, A-B testing <laughs> as being the sole approach for, for testing, you know, people's understanding around language. So 
what are you seeing as the, the key trends now that people should be picking up on? I don't think A-B testing is, it's not going to tell you why somebody did something. It's just going to tell you which one they chose. So I think there is a time and place for A-B testing, which might be you've done all the work. You have two really great decisions. You, you feel good about either one, but now you just want to leave it up to your audience or you know your users to tell you which one resonates with them. Up until that point, though, you have to have conversations. You have to be able to ask why or say more about that or tell me more about how you even heard about our product in the first place. Like if you can't tie everything back to the scenario of a user and the context in which they're living, you're not going to be making good decisions. So it takes the most time. It's the most expensive, but interviews are still the absolute best way to get the information you need to design, to write, whatever it is you're doing, um, talking to users. And if you can't talk to them, ask them to record themselves, you know, do have them record themselves going through your product or talking about your product, have them read copy aloud, um, you know, in the form of a diary study, you have to get people talking and responding to an idea. You can't just put a dashboard in front of yourself that tells you which design people chose or which copy they clicked on the most and feel like you've done research. That's not telling you anything except a decision was made and this is what that decision was. It's not going to tell you why or how. And how about, because a key part for me is, okay, you've done the research, mm-hmm. but then a lot of the time, I'm sure it can be quite a stressful thing having to play back the results to stakeholders who and who may be hearing something that they're not expecting or wanting to hear. So mm-hmm. is there a is there a an approach that you would recommend for really getting yourself in the right frame of mind to deliver news in the right way so that a it's understood and also is more likely to be acted upon? I think the thing you want to avoid uh is surprises, right? So you don't want to do a bunch of research and then say, "Hey, this hypothesis that we had is totally wrong and we need to come up with an entirely new direction." I think instead you want to share feedback as it's coming in. So as soon as you get that first feedback from a user that might indicate something that you hypothesized is totally off base, start sharing that and say, hey, I know it's only one interview, but our users did not understand this copy at all. Uh, And then after you've done five, you've already planted the seeds that, you know, we might not be on the right track here. The thing you don't want to do is do 20 interviews or 20 usability tests and then say, hey, surprise, all our hard work was for nothing. Um, You want people to already have it in their head that they need to start start thinking about their ideas, that the approach you have in mind, is it going to work? And maybe there's another pathway you need to choose. So uh, I guess to sum it up, I'd say proactively share the research. Don't wait till it's done. Gotcha. I'm finding it it does happen a lot now that stakeholders are on the journey right they're joining the sessions yeah uh, I, I guess sometimes <clears throat> um it's new to, to a lot of them so maybe they're they're challenging the approaches that are being taken do you do you think that it, it's useful for them to be part of these sessions i think everybody should be a part of the sessions uh everybody should have it uh there shouldn't be barriers to people uh and their customers or their users so i try to invite anybody to use your usability tests or interviews. And it's always illuminating. As soon as somebody does attend their first session, they, they want more of it. 
So yeah, I, I'm all for removing the barriers between people within an organization and their users. I'm wondering, do you think that the personality type of the researcher can impact their ability to deliver that research and also the findings in in the best way possible or does that not matter so much if you're a professional researcher you just do the job i have been careful to hire researchers who are open to any and all information and who do feel that their job is to serve others Um, i have interviewed researchers who felt that the researcher is the holder of information and should be the one to dictate what to do and what not to do I don't think that's the right approach because one, we don't know everything. We don't know all the reasons an executive is making a decision. Um, we don't know, well, we just don't know all the information. I'll just say that. Uh, and so I would not hire somebody who felt like the researcher is the gatekeeper. We're there to serve. Um, we might find things that don't get acted upon. We might find, we might get feedback. Uh, and choose to ignore some of it because there's mitigating factors and that's okay. You know, all the research is money in the bank. It's there if we need it. It might come up again six months from now uh, when we need to revisit a decision. But I, to get back to your original question, yes, the personality type matters. Um, if you are a researcher who feels like you have all the answers and your word is should be the only word, uh, you're not going to go far. People aren't going to work with you. It makes it all too easy to ignore anything you share. Researchers should be diplomats. They should be ambassadors. Um, they should be collaborative. And you know they should realize that we can't be precious about this. We're sharing information. It's okay if people don't use all the information at their disposal. And then finally, if you could, imagine I'm someone who knows nothing about user-centered design. So how would you explain that to me from your perspective? User-centered design is simply the idea that we can't build anything in a vacuum. Every, everything we do will be used by humans, and it's up to us to understand those humans so we can design them the best possible experience. Okay, great. So now we've got our, our three stock questions. Okay. I don't know if you've had a chance to think about it, I'll just uh, replay them again. So most overused word? My editor for my book pointed this out to me, that the, most, the word I use too much is little. And the example I'll give is I was trying to say that our goal is as researchers is to be more certain, but I kept saying our goal is to be a little more certain. And then I'd say, you know, it only takes a little bit of work to get that information. And then I'd say um, it just takes a little curiosity to be a good researcher. Uh, And my editor said, you've used little three times in three sentences. You've got to stop using little. Uh, I didn't even realize I was doing it until uh, my editor pointed that out. So, um, and my, my editor is the brilliant uh, Nicole Fenton. They they were the ones to illuminate the word that I used way too much. Your favorite word, Greg? I tend to use the word thoughtful a lot. And lately I've been finding myself using the word sense make or sense making, which my uh, computer's dictionary doesn't think that's a real word and keeps trying to hyphenate it or space it out. So I'm also wondering if I'm making up a word or using a word incorrectly, but sense make and sense making, uh, and then also thoughtful. Because uh, well, I'm, I'm always saying a thoughtful user experience or we should ask thoughtful questions. See, in, in conversation, I don't think there's anything wrong with using words that aren't real, <laughs> provided right. people understand what you mean. So exactly, I might hijack that one from you. Okay, and the current book that you'd like to recommend at the moment? Um, 
it's not a recent book, but it's one that I point to all the time because it is uh, criminally underread, even though it's, it's, it's very widely known, but not enough people know it. And that is Abby Covert's How to Make Sense of Any Mess. Uh, I absolutely love this book because it helps you think about how to structure information, um, how to, how to organize content in a way that, that makes sense. Uh, and also the editor for this book, again, was Nicole Fenton, who I hired to edit my book. Nicole is the editor of, uh, or sorry, the author of Nicely Said, um, Writing for the Web with Style and Purpose, which they wrote with Kate Kiefer Lee. Um, this I thought was a, a brilliant book, but it was Nicole's editing on this book that made me realize how valuable a, a great editor can be. So um, my book recommendation is how to make sense of any mess. Tremendous. Thank you so much, Craig Bernstein. For You're your welcome. Time. Much appreciated. Thank you. 